So today, with a long weekend, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to actually just hear from uh, a very gifted speaker, preacher by the name of Megan Good. Megan's uh, one of the pastors at uh, Trinity Mennonite Church in Phoenix, Arizona. She's a friend of mine that I met uh, a few years ago through my involvement with Jesus Collective. And this is a, a sermon that she gave back in 2019 at a Mennonite conference. Now, that's not a bunch of buggies in the parking lot and horses, um, modern-day Mennonites. But uh, Megan, I think, has a great word for them at that time. And I think it's still really appropriate for us today. So I'm going to invite you to, uh, to watch as she shares the message with us today. Megan Larissa Good is a teaching pastor at Trinity Mennonite Church in Glendale, Arizona, and author of The Bible Unwrapped, Making Sense of Scripture Today. Megan recently completed a Doctor of Ministry at Portland Seminary, where she received the Beekner Award for Excellence in Preaching. Her doctoral research focused on the nature of biblical authority and the way the Western Church's relationship with Scripture has shifted through different historical eras. In Megan's free time, she likes to write and travel the country, helping people rediscover the dazzling story of God. Megan loves stories, and Jesus, and stories about Jesus, also dinosaurs. Please welcome to the stage, Megan Larissa Good. You know, official bios are really great, but I feel like if you want to know me, the one thing you really need to know about me is is that if I was not already living the dream as a Mennonite pastor, I would be working for NASA. A lot of my free time these days, I spend reading books on astrophysics and listening to podcasts, um, because whenever they put out the call for a spiritual guide for the first Mars colony, I would really like to apply. And I'd like to think my chances are better than most, because if you're going to colonize a new planet, don't you think you want the pacifist pastor to help people out? But I'm also a lover of random facts, and in the midst of my research, I've learned all sorts of cool stuff about the universe. Um, For example, did you know that space was once not black as we see it today, but it used to be entirely orange? About a hundred seconds, a hundred seconds after time began, the temperature of the universe was right around one billion degrees, which is at least twice as hot as it is in my home in Phoenix right now. (laughs) But what really blows my mind is that scientists can actually tell us the precise temperature a hundred seconds after the beginning of the universe. But if you ask them what existed two minutes earlier, they will tell you they have literally no idea. They don't even have a way to talk about it. And what's really cool about being Christians is what we do. In the book of Genesis, it says that in the beginning, the ruach of God hovered over the unformed creation. Ruach is spirit, breath, wind, the energy of God. God breathes these words, let there be light, And the universe explodes into being. And fast forward just a little bit, and God forms humans, and God breathes into their lungs that same ruach, and the human beings come alive with God's wind inside. 
And the Bible opens with this portrait of the world as it was designed to be from the start. The Bible calls this portrait Eden. And Eden is a place where all of the air and water is unpolluted and everything grows as if it was zucchini, <laughs> except the actual zucchini. And family relationships are more like Gilmore Girls and less like Skywalker Boys. I mean, it's a really good place. But all of this life and all of this beauty, it's wind-powered. It's powered by that billowing ruach of God. But flip through your Bible about a thousand pages further. And in the book of Ezekiel, God gives the prophet Ezekiel a vision. God takes Ezekiel on a visionary tour. He takes him on a tour of almost the exact same plot of the earth where the book of Genesis once described Eden, but the view has changed a little bit. What Ezekiel sees is that the sun is just burning down unrelentingly, and the soil is cracked and broken, nothing grows. The only sound that you can hear is the call of some predatory bird. And Ezekiel starts walking and he hears this crunch and he looks beneath his feet and he sees that the ground underneath him is just covered in bones. Skulls and femurs and and ribs, these are human bones everywhere. And Ezekiel understands in this kind of visionary experience he's having that, that he is seeing a metaphor for the state of the people of God. Now, this scene raises one big obvious question. What happened to these people? I mean, how did things get this bad? And like like all big questions the people of faith ask, the answer turns out to be controversial. It depends on who you ask. I mean, some people say that, that they were just overrun by hostile forces outside their control. But if you ask other people, they'll say the problem is more complex. It started earlier. I mean, maybe it started when they lost the book of God's law and nobody actually noticed. Maybe it started when the gap began to grow between the richest people of faith and the poor people of faith. I mean, maybe it started when worship began to devolve into an empty ritual where everyone was just singing for the love of the sound of their own voice. But whatever your answer, however you think it happened, whenever you think it started, the one thing that no one can deny is that the people of faith have lost breath. All that's left is an empty pile of bones. So what does it mean to lose your breath in a biblical sense? Well, remember the story back in the beginning of creation. It was God's ruach, it was God's breath, it was God's wind that brought humans to life. And that wind was delivered with a particular kind of delivery method. God's mouth to our nose, like infant CPR. And I know that sounds a little weird, but it's there to make a point. The way that human life is sustained is by this kind of intimate connection with God. An intimate personal connection. And breath, you know, breathing, it doesn't happen just once. You have to do it over and over again. This connection was meant to be regular. Which means that being a human, human life is not really like being a watch that you stick a battery in and wind up and start and then it just ticks down for the rest of its life. 
Being a human is more like being a hot air balloon. You are being constantly powered by a fire blowing hot air up within it, and the minute the fire stops, you are in big trouble because you begin to sink, sink, sink. In the Jewish tradition, many people believe um, that the Old Testament personal name of God, Yahweh, comes from the sound a breath makes going in and out of your lungs. Yahweh. Yahweh. I mean, what that means is that every single breath we breathe is a testimony to the one who is sustaining life itself. You know, before I became a pastor, I used to believe that it was really obvious when someone stopped breathing. Um, But a few years ago, I went to visit a member of my church who was dying, and I walked into the room, and I I saw his wife sitting in the corner, and I went and sat down next to her, and we spent a kind of, uh, maybe a full hour in like casual small talk. You know, how's your house? How's your family? How's the weather? And at some point in this conversation we're having, I start looking over at the bed, and I think, this person hasn't moved in a while. And finally, I said to the wife, do you think we should check on your husband? And she said, Pastor Megan, did no one tell you? He died eight hours ago. (laughs) I know what you all are thinking. I'm the worst pastor in the world. But in my defense, if you've ever sat with someone dying, it's very hard to tell when they stop breathing because breathing becomes shallower and slower and slower until it eventually peters off. And the thing about the people of faith is when the people of faith stop breathing, it's even harder to tell because the action doesn't stop at the same time the breath stops. I mean, if I were to ask you to guess what is the world record for the longest a human being has held their breath? I mean, ponder for a moment. I was going to try an experiment and have a contest here where we'd all hold our breath and see who won. Um, But if all 3,000 of you fainted, I was pretty sure I'd be in trouble with Glenn. Um, So instead, just hazard a guess that the the world record for breath holding and whisper it to the person next to you so one of you gets bragging rights in just a second. What's your guess? All right. Are you ready for this? The world record for human breath holding is 24 minutes and three seconds. Did anybody win? The thing about human bodies, human bodies are so incredible and, and so complex that it turns out that our body can go through the motions of not breathing for quite a while, but then just all of a sudden you hit the line and you are out. Now, I've talked to a lot of Christians recently, including here in the last week, who say when they look out over the landscape of the church right now, it looks to them a whole lot like what the prophet Ezekiel sees when he looks out over the valley. What they see looks a whole lot like a valley full of bones. And if you follow Christian media and even secular media, it's full of hot takes on like what happened here, what went wrong. And some people say it was just huge, vast cultural changes that swept through out of our control. Some people say um, Christians got too obsessed with entertainment or with consumerism. Christians are hypocrites. 
Christians neglect the poor. Christians have killed each other in their endless civil wars. And there might be some truth in all of those things. But the thing that I've noticed is that Christians don't always lose their breath for negative reasons. Sometimes we begin to lose our breath because the people of faith start realizing that there are important things to do and they get busy doing them. And they realize there are important things to say and they get busy saying them and there are problems to solve and they get busy solving them and the wounds multiply faster than the healers and the questions multiply faster than the answers and soon we're working so hard and we're trying so hard that we lose track of the basic reality of our lives. That we are fundamentally dependent beings. We need God like we need air. In and out. In and out. And without even realizing what happens, we end up just working harder and harder, often for good, but we are being fueled by nothing anymore except our own steam. You know, I have a chance to speak to Christians from a lot of traditions, and I've come to have a real conviction that Mennonites have a a bigger problem here than many other kinds of Christians, precisely because of some of our distinctive strengths. We are people of action, which means we are always doing a whole lot of stuff. And we are also people who highly value community to sustain us in that action. But the trouble is, we cannot survive as people of faithful action only by breathing each other's exhalations. We were designed, we were wired to live only by breathing the fresh oxygen of God. And, you know, the thing about community is that community with the windows open and God's wind blowing through is an incredible gift. But when we stop breathing God, the experience of community we start creating is more like being shut in an airtight box where all we have to breathe is each other's CO2. And the more we talk, and the more we struggle, and the more we argue, the faster we eat up our oxygen, and the faster we expire. No, Christian community, churches, even Christian individuals do not die because they're opposed. Christianity has always experienced opposition, and that's some of the times the church has flourished most. I mean, Christian community doesn't die because it's wrong. Read a little church history, and you will discover we are always wrong about something at every given moment. Christian community dies. Christians die because they stop breathing, because they stop believing that God is alive and expecting God to show up and do anything beyond us. Christian community dies when we start thinking this is our story and we are the main characters in it. We are the only actors in it. Christian community dies when we lose sight of the fact that our first and our most crucial work is to breathe in the living Ruach of God. About 12 years ago, I was a graduate student with no real idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And one day I was sitting on the campus of the university I was attending and I I was sitting in some quiet corner just kind of praying to myself. And I suddenly had this like really odd random feeling that I should get up and walk to this room across campus for no particular reason. 
And I, I fought this impulse for a while, and finally I decided, why not? So I walked across campus, and I opened the door of this room, and, and what I saw inside were two women. One was a stranger to me, and, and the other was a woman I had met a few times who I knew had discerned it as her vocation to simply spend her life listening for the voice of God. And this woman looked up as I walked in the room, and she said, Megan, why are you here? And I said, I have no idea. And she looked at me in silence for a second, and she said, I know why you're here. God is calling you, and the two of us are supposed to lay our hands on you right now and pray that the Spirit of God empowers you for whatever it is you're going to do. And I said, okay. So these two women laid their hands on me and began to pray. Um, now you need to understand these two women were African-American women from the Pentecostal tradition, and I'm a white Mennonite from the Midwest. So, so the language in which they were praying was not necessarily familiar to my experience. So I had kind of one eye open during the prayer, like wondering if something is supposed to happen, am I supposed to do something here? And they finished the prayer and they said, all right, Megan, you just sit there and you wait for God and we're leaving. And they left me in the room. And I was like, what am I supposed to do? And you know that moment at the end of a Super Bowl game when they take that gallon of Gatorade, that huge container, and they dump it on the head of the coach of the winning team? It was the strangest thing. The moment the latch on that door clicked, I went from complete confusion to feeling like a giant Gatorade container of sheer joy was just dumped over my head. It was like Mennonite Convention and Disney World and Christmas all at the same time. And I didn't know what to do, so I just started laughing and laughing and laughing. It felt like my whole body was just radiating with light. And I sat in that room by myself and laughed, belly laughs, like with your best friend for three hours. Not because I knew what I was going to do with my life, I still didn't have a clue, because I knew God is so real, and God is so close, and God is so good, and wherever you are going in life, that reality is enough. I mean, the most fundamental truth that I know about human beings is that we are creatures who live by someone else's air. If we haven't received, there is nothing we can give. Wherever we are called to go, if there's no fuel in the car, we're not going to get there. I can say this from experience. I mean, and it is my conviction that so much of the church has been living 23 minutes into a held breath. There are people here today who have not breathed in years and never even realized it. There are people here today who have never even learned what it is to breathe at all. And we're exhausted, we're so tired, and we're angry, and we're frustrated. And the thing we need to know is that a point comes when you cannot think or argue or do your way into answers anymore. You can only breathe your way into life. And if we are not careful, we can start functioning as if the Christian story were about following the Jesus principle, or the Jesus idea, or the Jesus ethic. That is not Christianity. Christianity is following Jesus, the living person. I mean, walking so close, you step on the back of his shoes and suck in his air where he goes. 
There, there is a reason. It's no coincidence that the first thing the resurrected Jesus does is he shows up in a room with his disciples and he exhales his resurrected ruach right in their faces. And he says to them, share my air. Like, this is the fuel you are going to need for the mission you're about to undertake. And what is that mission? Well, first and foremost, it's making disciples of Jesus. Not because we believe that people's abstract spiritual beliefs are more important than the daily material realities of their lives, but because we understand that it isn't our breath that has the power to give the world the healing and life it needs. It's only the resurrected Ruach of Jesus Christ. I mean, the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, he looks over this valley of bones, and God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, Ezekiel. Like, tell these bones to stand up and live. And all of a sudden, Ezekiel sees the bones rise to their feet and come together, and flesh grows on them, and the wind of God comes, and these bones start to breathe. I mean, here is the amazing news. In a world of resurrection, it is never too late. It is never too late for you as an individual. It is never too late for the community of faith. But there's also a word of caution from Jesus. There were people in Jesus' day who said, we are children of Abraham and that's enough. We have the heritage of faith. We have the bloodline of faith. We have the connections. We have the right beliefs. And Jesus says, no, you know, the graveyard, that place is the great equalizer. Blood counts for nothing in a graveyard. The only thing that matters in the graveyard is whose breath it is you're breathing. I mean, this is the Bible's story from start to finish. You are dust and you are borrowed breath. And the question that will decide your destiny as an individual and the question that will decide the destiny of the church is not whether we are right, it's not even whether we are good, it is whether we are gods. Church, it is time for us to start breathing again. And the good news of the gospel... The good news of the gospel is that any day can be resurrection day. This is your day. This is your day. Don't wait a moment longer if anything in this resonates with you. Now, I want to invite you right now, just close your eyes and begin to breathe deeply. Jesus Christ is here right now every bit as present as he was in that locked room with the disciples. He is here and he is breathing. Saying, receive me, receive my life, receive what you need. Breathe him in. Spiritual writer Henry Nouwen speaks in his book, Reaching Out, about one of the Christian saints in history whose life was transformed by a one-sentence prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. This man began to pray this prayer once in a while, and then he prayed it every time he had a pause in the day, first a thousand times, then 3,000 times a day. This simple one-sentence prayer breathed all throughout his day, transformed his relationship with himself, God, others, Lord Jesus Christ, 
have mercy on us. You don't need fancy words. That's the only prayer you need. Breathe. God, we are waiting for fresh lungs full of your Ruach. Trusting that you are here because you absolutely said you'd be. We don't know where this wind is going to carry us, but because we are with you, we know it's going somewhere beautiful. So we say yes, wherever the wind is blowing, we are going to. Not by ourselves, not under our steam, but with deep, undiluted, gulping lungfuls of you. We love you, Jesus, and we are yours. In your name we pray. Amen. I hope that was encouraging for you. Let's take a moment. I just want to give you a bit more time to process that. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Fill us with your breath, with your spirit, once again, day by day. Amen.